Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk. Hey, I want to welcome you to Northbridge, and I am just so thankful to see you today, and so thankful to I've gotten to connect with many of you before service started, at the beginning of service, and uh, hopefully I can say hi to you if I haven't had a chance to connect. Uh, always love, for me, uh, Sunday is always a, a banner day because, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just the weird one, but, uh, and, well, we know that that's the case to begin with, but, uh, but also, uh, you, you know, you need to realize that when you show up on Sunday that it's not like that your face is forgotten in six days of the rest of the week, right? But no, 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 no. You're, if you're part of this family, if you're part of, of this time, uh, know that, that leaders, know that other staff members, we gather on a weekly basis, we pray for you. Uh, know that oftentimes your faces come through my mind just at unique periods of time. That's one reason why I have that, that app on my phone uh, that has our fa- our church families on it because I oftentimes multiple times throughout the week I scroll through our online database our, and just look at families and I just pray for them during that time. Not trying to say oh that makes me more spiritual. No, no, I'm just saying that what I do and I pray for you. I think of you throughout the week and uh, so when I get to see you on Sunday, it's a it's a wonderful time for me. Um, talking about a subject today, looking at something that is about them. It's about them. It's about the people that lived in Paul's day, but it's also about us too. This story is played out in our lives as we live on present day planet earth. And, uh, and so with that in mind, it's one that it could be very, ca- very easy where you could, as you start hearing what I'm talking about, you can be like, oh, been there, done that. We've heard this story before. And you go into just remote uh, control, you just kind of forget about stuff and you just you just check out and you start like thinking about what you're going to have for lunch today or you think about your grocery list when you go to Sam's Club or whatever it is you do. Uh, don't do that because we're talking about something that is real and something that we deal with very, very much every day of our lives. At least I do. I believe you do as well. Before we get into the, the passage though, we're talking about Paul. Uh, last week I preached on... Uh, on Paul going to Jerusalem. And remember I talked about it. He stopped at Miletus and he talked to these Ephesian brothers and sisters, these leaders from the Ephesian church. And, and that was the context of last Sunday. Uh, and I thought it was important that what we need to do is back up. We're going to back, we're backing up one chapter. We're going to chapter 19. And I thought it's essential for us to understand these Ephesians, to understand what the church in Ephesus looked like and why these people loved Paul so much, and also to look at the people of Ephesus. So that's what we're going to do today. And uh, we're looking at, uh, first of all, if you have a copy of scriptures, turn to Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be camped at today, looking at a very important story. It's just a typical day in Paul's life. Uh, The community of Ephesus uh, just important for us to just kind of do a quick Wikipedia over Ephesus so you kind of know who these people are. Other than Rome, Ephesus is the richest city in the Roman Empire. It was a port city, which meant that goods and services were constantly, daily, 
coming into that city, goods and services daily going out of that city. It was very much a cosmopolitan city. Every race was represented in this large community. Every uh, religion was there. Uh, every level of culture was there. Uh, it was a very wealthy city. These people were very well learned. Uh, it had the largest library of the ancient world. Uh, thought of over 200,000 individual books. And keep in mind, this is a day and age in which books are not stored on mainframes. They're not stored in computers. So imagine 200,000 books on shelves in a giant storehouse. People from all over the world were coming there to read and to learn. It was high education there. It was an area of the arts. The arts was there. It had the largest amphitheater of the Roman world. This place held 25,000 people. Uh, matter of fact, in between services, it's talking to Paul and Brenda. They were there on one of their cruises. They were there looking at, at this amphitheater and amazed, they said, of how being on the top level, the top tier, that you could hear people talking. Even today, the acoustics are still intact there. Uh, absolutely amazing place. 25,000 people could gather in this amphitheater. It's the pinnacle of society, the pinnacle of the arts. Every, every time, you know, Every time that Oz came through, or every time that what, what's the what's the the play the the new play Wicked that's right. Every time Wicked came through ancient Roman society, you know it was going to be playing in Ephesus because that's where everyone wanted to be on that stage. Uh, not only did it have the largest amphitheater, it also had the largest temple that was dedicated to depending on your translation, Diana or Artemis. If you hear Artemis, they're talking about Diana. If you read Diana, they're talking about Artemis. It's, those are the, the same names. Uh, it's a patron. She was the patron god of Ephesus. She was also the god of witchcraft, of love. There were several things that she represented. And so uh, it's, it, they understood that what they did was they carved a statue. There was a meteorite that hit and landed in Ephesus thousands of years, evidently, before Ephesus was formed. This meteorite rock, they, they believed it was an image or it was, it was sent to them by Diana. So they carved this statue of her with that rock, and then they built a temple around it. This temple was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the, or seven wonders of the ancient world. It was amazing. So out of that, there was also this whole trade that developed where people from all over the Roman world would come so they could look upon this temple. They could go to this temple. Think of it, if you will. Uh, you know, we're used to that with having Branson in our own backyard, right? So same kind of deal. You had people. And, and so, of course, there was a lot of people that got very wealthy because they knew that there would be travelers coming in to study and to be with and be in the temple of Artemis. You know, there were people, just like today, there's people hawking Branson shirts, you know, shirts that you would never wear, but you know that every day there's going to be people coming from Paducah, Kentucky that's going to walk home with $100 worth of Branson t-shirts, right? Nothing wrong with Paducah, Kentucky if you're out there listening to me in Paducah, Kentucky. Just make an example here. There were all sorts of statues being created that people, as they had, they left you know, people were leaving. They had to get a memento of their trip to Ephesus. So they'd buy the statue of Diana. Again, much like uh, you're going to Branson to see the big 80-foot tree, which I don't believe it's 80 feet tall. doesn't look 80 feet tall, but whatever. You go see the tree, and you walk out. And what do you do as you're walking out? You see the, oh, there's mandolins and lutes and all these things. I need to buy something. I need to have one last thing to remember my trip to, you know, beautiful Silver Dollar City uh, here, you know, with 10,000 other people. It's the same kind of concept going on in 
Ephesus. You know, there were people that instead of making bracelets that said WWJD, they were making bracelets that said WWDD. You know, what would Diana do? They were doing all, you know, there were people you could get bumper stickers of a Diana fish eating a fish with legs on it, right? There was just all sorts of things going on in the trade of Diana, and it made this city, it was one of many reasons why the city was very wealthy. And we pick up the story in verse 11 of Paul lands in Ephesus and he sees what's going on and he sees the incredible opulence and the wealth. And he also sees the wickedness and the witchcraft and how these people's lives, many of them are practicing sorcery because that's the hub of the occult is going on right there. And we see in verse 11 that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Why? To show his power to people who did not know who God was, to show his power to people who did not have the privilege of having the word of God in front of them and growing up with it. And so they had no clue of God's power. And so he empowers Paul to do incredible things. Verse 12, even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus, of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So you get the picture. There were these seven sons. They were all, their dad was a chief priest. The, uh, the, his name was Sceva. These seven sons, they, they get a company together. They have an ancient Ghostbusters, if you will. They're going around trying to, to cast demons out of people, trying to rid homes of unwanted spirits, because again, this is the hub of the occult. This practice is, is very prolific. People thinking that evil spirits are everywhere. And so these seven sons, they see the effectiveness of Paul and how Paul has authority in the spiritual world. So what do they do? They come up to this demon-possessed man, the scriptures say, and, uh, and, and they, they declare in the name of the Jesus that Paul is preaching, come out of him. Verse 15 says that one day this evil spirit answered them. He had a smackdown on the seven sons of Sceva, and he said, Jesus I know, and Paul I am familiar with, that some translations say. Our translation literally says, and Paul I know about him as well, but, but who are you? Who are you? Wow. Man, you think you got put down. Did you ever get put down by a demon, you know? Uh, this demon rises up and says, you claim to have authority, but you have no authority. Verse 16, then the man who had this evil spirit jumped on them, jumped on the seven sons and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now let's stop for a moment and think on this verse because it's easy just to run past it. These seven men took such a beating, they got literally the pants knocked off of them. Now, you know, you've been around for a while. You know I'm a karate guy. I've, you know, studied martial arts for 20-some years. I've had some beatings in my life. I've never been hit so hard and so often. I was so dazed and scared, I walked out into the street without any clothes on to just get away from my opponent. Never, ever happened. Jeff takes karate with me. That's never happened to me. That's never happened to Jeff, right? We've never had that. Think on, you get hit so hard, your pants are off of you. 
think about not only the physical damage that's done to your body, but think of the emotional trauma you're going through at this point and the spiritual trauma you're experiencing, right? I mean, this is terrible, terrible. These guys got beat so bad and the whole community knows about it. Think about that. You come into the marketplace the day after that happens and they're like, you're out and about seven you know, second son of Sceva, you're out and about now. How can you get out, man? You were, you were hit so hard yesterday. You were running out with, you were running around the street without your pants on. And, you know, I'm sure he was like, that wasn't me. I don't know what you're talking about. I was, I was in Canada at the time. I don't know. That wasn't me. And they're like, no, it was you. You, you, we saw you. It was, we saw you. It was you, you know, uh, these guys, man, what an incredible story, and it gets out, doesn't it? It gets out, verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Now, right now, if we think on that for a moment, you know, as Americans, there's probably a part of us that's like, I don't know if I like that verse seized in fear. I thought God was a God of love. God was a God of peace. God was a God of joy. And well, God's not a God of fear. He casts fear aside. There shouldn't be fear in the presence of God. And remember and think about this fear. First of all, fear is not a bad thing. See, as Americans, we think fear is a terrible thing because we want to puff ourselves up and say, we're not afraid of anything, right? But the reality, fear is a good thing. Fear helps you understand the pecking order in life. And friends, I have to tell you this, even though you think you're on the top all the time, you're not. I remember as a college student, I was headed to Glorieta, New Mexico, and part of going to Glorieta, New Mexico was going through West Texas. And we stopped one day. It was the hottest day of that year in August in West Texas. And I look and I see this sagebrush and the tumbleweed literally, literally chest high. And I'm thinking as a, I was 19 years old at the time, I'm thinking as a 19-year-old college kid, wow, this is cool. I've never seen anything like this. And so I start walking around in it. It was one of those stories like either from like a, a you get this from one of those like Julio Iglesias videos or a sea level movie about bad guys. Cause it literally, I'm in West Texas and it's this, this old truck stop, you know, off of what used to be, I guess, you know, you, you know, the highway. And so there's nothing there. The signs like, you know, waving in the wind, creaking. I mean, it was that whole thing. And I'm like walking around and just do, 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 do. Wow, this is cool. I'm this high in, in scrub brush. And, and, and all of a sudden I start hearing rattles. Not, not a rattle. I'm hearing rattles. And two things hit my mind at that very moment. The first thing is I, I can't see anything below my chest right now. Literally, I'm in such thick coverage. I can't see my feet. And second thing is this, and this, is, this shows how intelligent I was, folks. The second thing that hit me was, I'm not in Missouri anymore. And you know, in Missouri, you don't have diamondback rattlesnakes. But you know what? That information doesn't mean no good because I'm not in Missouri. And there's rattlesnakes around me. Guess what? In that moment, I was seized with fear. And I recognized that in that very moment, I was not in the top of the pecking order, friends. But there were multiple rattlesnakes around me. So what did I do? I, I began to just get my way, slowly walk the very exact path I took because I felt like, okay, I don't believe these snakes move. Why? It was more of a, I hope these snakes did not move, right? And so I just worked my way out. Pretty soon I stopped. I hear the rattles are starting to stop. 
And I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. And I got out of that scrub brush. I was afraid. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that fear. Matter of fact, you would think I was stupid if I said the story, I didn't let anything fear me. Some rails aren't going to stop me. And I just kept on walking. And then now I have, you know, knock, knock, knock. I have a fake leg because I got bit six times, right? That, that'd be stupid, right? Because fear seized me. And that's what happened here. These people were afraid because they're like, we're dealing with powers that we have no control over. And guess what? There's one named Jesus, the son of the living God, who does have control over him. Wow. That's, there's something fearful about that. And they were not only fearful, but they were, because of that, that fear led to wonder. They were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord was held in high honor, high wonder. And many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. As a result of this fear of Jesus, they, people begin to repent of their sin. They, and, and mark that, when a movement of God happens in your life, you know, we as, again, Americans, we want, we're like, oh, I've just been introduced to Jesus. Okay, let's move on, new life now. No, no, no. What happens just naturally is God begins to get a hold of your life and there is a repentance of sin. There is an understanding of things and choices you used to make that were terrible and destructive and harmful to you and other people. You can't just go, oh boy, okay, move on. Let's not think about that anymore. No, repentance occurs and has to happen. And these people, they begin to repent. They begin to ask for forgiveness from God for the things that they were doing behind closed doors, the things that they were doing when they believed no one else was watching them. They openly confessed what they had done. Verse 19, a number who had practiced sorcery Many who had practiced sorcery, there was many of these people, not just one or two. What did they do? They brought their scrolls together. These scrolls that had all these ancient incantations of occultic power, uh, these incantations to de demon for demonic forces to try to get your ways and get things done. They took all of these things that they had bought over the years as they were you know, going and worshiping Diana and going to these different different occult shops. They, they brought it all together and they burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. I am told that 50,000 drachmas in that time's money equals approximately $7 million of today's money. This was not just one or two people coming and bringing their pet sin project. This was a mass migration of people coming and repenting uh, of their sin and of occult practices. And in this way, verse 20, the scripture says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power and grew in power. Now, the story continues, and there was this man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith, and Demetrius gained a very good living by crafting these little fetishes, these little idols that people, again, like I said, I made the joke about people as they're walking out, they're like, ah, I need something to remember this trip. Do I get the, the cardboard cutout that you put the hose in and the hose is waved around that you see when you walk into Branson? No, I think I'll get that silver statue of Diana and put that on my shelf and maybe it'll be a good luck sign. Maybe I'll worship it a little bit. Maybe I'll throw in a couple of, uh, of uh, homages, you know, a couple of prayers every, every week or every year and maybe it'll help me. I'll get that. Well, this is, this guy Demetrius, he made those, and he made a very good living making those. And he comes, he starts recognizing, he's like, hey, hey, even though everyone else is happy now, you know what, I'm not happy. Why? Well, we, we'll read this. And in verse 25, this is what is recorded. Uh, it says, 
He says he called them together. Demetrius called who? Other people who made a living in the Artemis worship. He called these people together along with other workers in related trades. You know, the people that owned hotels, the people came in, the people that made the t-shirts, the people that drove the tram around, you know, to help them get to, to and from. All, he brought all those people in. And he, he said to them, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business, this Diana worship. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia? He says the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Now, this is just interesting to me. I think it might be interesting to you too. In the original text, and more than one of them, in this area, it says, the, he says, it says, it, the literal translation is, Paul says, and then there's the, whatever, the, the Greek version of parentheses. Parentheses were surrounded in multiple manuscripts of the, the, fir, the first generation. So there was, we would be reading this, if we were reading it like that, we'd be reading it, it says that Paul says that, quote unquote, gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Why is that important? And matter of fact, you might, if you have a copy of scripture, you might want to just put quotes around for yourself because you go, okay, why should I do that? Evidently, this was a catchphrase that Paul was using in Ephesus. You know, catchphrases. We, we hear them all the time, especially from comedians, you know? Larry the Cable Guy, old comedian there. Get her done. Here's your sign. You know, there's all sorts of catchphrases that different, you know, people use all the time. Evidently, Paul's catchphrase in Ephesus was he would go around and just say, Gods that are made by human hands are no gods at all. And you think about that, you, most of us would go, yeah, that's probably true. I mean, that is a true statement there, uh, that, that God's created. You know, basically what Paul's saying is that a God you create, God you make up with in your mind is not really a God, folks. And we sit back and we could look at these people and go, oh, how ignorant they are. There's, I mean, just a bunch of rubes, you know, that believe the world was flat. And most of them know they didn't back then. But anyway, they, you know, they, they just believe the most ignorant of things. They believe Diana came from a meteorite. You know, how ridiculous. You know, we find that in our day and age, don't we? I mean, I have a number of times encountered, you know, maybe I'm preaching on holiness or I'm preaching about something that rubs somebody raw and they'll either, they could write me a letter or they'll come and confront me and this is what they'll say. They'll go, they'll go, that's no Jesus of mine. That's not my Jesus. You know, you talk about how that God's not happy when I sin. Well, that's, that's not my Jesus. Well, here's the reality, friend. And I've never said this. I've never said this because I realize in those scenarios I have in one hand a a bucket of, of water, and on the other hand, I have a bucket of, of, you know, kerosene, and there's a fire in front of me. I'm going to choose, I'm going to more often than not choose the bucket of water to pour on it. So I've never said this, but oftentimes it's going on in my mind when someone says to me, eh, that's no Jesus of mine. I want to say, well, the Jesus of you is no Jesus either. It's just simply, all that is is a version. It's just showing who you are. It's a projection of yourself. You know, it's a projection of who you are. And that's what Paul's trying to communicate here in verse 26. He, you know, and Demetrius heard it. He heard it loud and clear. And so he's telling these people, he's saying, man, this guy Paul's saying that gods that are made by us are not gods. And he goes on in verse 27, he said, there is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited 
and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty, is what Demetrius says. And what does he do? He works up a frenzy with these people that are there. And they go from their meeting spot, and they go to the amphitheater I talked about. And on the way, they're getting other people, and they're pulling other people into their little flash mob that they're developing. And they come to this amphitheater. And we believe that the amphitheater is full. So there's 25,000 people. And what's Demetrius doing? He's being Ar Artemis' defender, Diana's defender, and he's chanting, and he's telling them, to. he's having these people just shout over and over and over, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I'm not going to ask all of you to say it because some of you will think, well, we crossed a barrier, we crossed a line here at some point. I'm not going to have you say it, but they were doing this for two hours and just getting themselves, you know, if you know how a mob works, they're just getting themselves into a frenzy and they begun other trance. I mean, I don't know. I've been to a few promise keeper meetings over the time. I've been to a few youth rallies. So maybe, maybe one side of the amphitheater was saying, we love Artemis. Yes, we do. We love Artemis. How about you? And then the other side starts going, we love Artemis. Yes, we do. We, and they just keep on going back and forth. And maybe some guy gets up and, and on one side they go, Arda. And then the other side goes, mess. And the you know, Arda, mess. And they're doing this for two hours and they're getting into this frenzy, right? Working themselves up. And the scripture goes on and it says uh, in verse uh, 32 that the assembly was in confusion, some were shouting one thing and some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there, right? Now, Paul is knowing what's going on. He's noticing the, the marketplace is unusually quiet that day. And someone says to Paul, 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 they're in the amphitheater. And Paul, being the preacher that he is, goes, wow, 25,000 people, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to preach. And so he starts heading over there. Well, fortunately, saner minds prevailed, and they're like, no, no, Paul, you're not preaching today, buddy. You go in there today, they're going to tear you apart. They are very angry. We need to be silent. We need to stay away. Well, fortunately, we see that saner minds also within the population, within the the community prevailed, and we see here that the, a city clerk, a leader within, the, clerk, within the, the government, he comes to them, and he's like, guys, people, we need to settle down here because we're really close to being called a, a mob that's rioting. And see, that's a big deal in Rome, because if a mob is rioting in Rome, the Roman government shuts that stuff down quick. It's not like our culture today where people riot and the police are said, oh, you know, just leave them, let them, let them, let them have their uh, ability to speak. We need to let them do whatever they want to do because we don't want, we don't want anyone to be offended. Oh no. In Roman culture, if there's rioting happened, everyone who's rioting would be beaten at best, killed at worst, and the leaders were guaranteed to be rounded up and crucified. Why? So the next city down the road goes, no, nah, we're not going to riot because we know, we know what happens when the peace is disturbed in Rome. They take that stuff seriously. So you have the city clerk going, guys, we are very close to being in a riot right now. And there's a regiment right outside just waiting to be called in to put this thing down. So let's stop, stop, stop it. And that's what happens. And that's what happened here. And then ultimately, ultimately, uh, Paul is told and led and experiences that his time in Ephesus is probably over. It's time to move on. And so this is when he begins his journey that we talked about last week when he starts going towards Jerusalem, headed towards Jerusalem here, okay? Uh, 
Well, as I mentioned earlier, this story was for them to show the power of God and show how God makes a, a world of difference, even in the most pagan of places, even in the, most, in the darkest of places, God can make a difference. Jesus makes a difference. But this story is also for us in that it makes us, it forces us to think about idols. Because again, you and I could sit back and we could just be like, those people, man, the ignorance to, to create a statue and to think that that statue has power. Boy, I'm so glad we're, we're so much more high-minded than that in America. We're, as Christians in 21st century, uh, you know, first world, we know, we understand those things, and we don't have to deal with that. And I say to you, you are so wrong. <laughs> and the reality is idols are just as prevalent today as they were back then. The only difference was back then they were very overt about their worship of idols, you know, they they go to temples dedicated to them, churches dedicated to them. They would they would worship them. We worship our idols, not overtly, but very covertly, right? Because here's the reality: what uh, how I define an idol is an idol is a good thing that turns into God things. Idols are good things that turn into God things. You see, the reality is that. Uh, Idols can be any number of things. And in a few moments, I'm going to tell you about some of the idols that I struggle with, some of the idols that I have to fight with. But there's, there's some thoughts that we can see through this scripture that teaches us about idols. And that's what I just want to do the remaining minutes we have is to talk about these idols. First of all, idols, the first thing is idols engage the deepest emotions in our life. That's what gives idols power. What? Why? Because these idols, they promise power. They promise security in our lives. They promise significance. Remember, these idols could be things like money or romance. You know, these are good things that turn into God things. And so the question I ask you as you think about this is, what is it that, that creates that in your life? What is it in your life that you look to that will give you power or security or comfort or significance in your life? You know, for me, just being totally honest with you, for me, two things that are idols for me is success and popularity, you know? I want, I want to be known just inside when I'm clinging to an idol in my life, when I'm clinging to the idol of success, I find myself looking and comparing myself to other pastors, and when I can find a pastor that is less than me in accomplishments, I feel puffed up and good, and then when I look at these super pastors that are out there, then I am like, oh, I didn't accomplish anything, you know? Uh, when I, I think of popularity, and I want, I want to be liked, I want to be known, I want people to love me, I want people to want to to be around me, right? Matter of fact, I can tell you, I know that in this, uh, when, when, this pop, when, when the idol of popularity begins to take a stranglehold on my life, I know, I can know it, but by the fact that I will find myself, and I've just confessed this to you because it's ridiculous, it's a ridiculous fear, but I will find myself occasionally on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings just beginning to get a heaviness inside my chest about coming to church here on Sunday morning because my fear is, my, this irrational, crazy fear is, well, today's the day that everyone's going to figure out that I'm a joke, I'm a fraud, and they're going to, you know, just spontaneously, everyone's going to decide to go to some other church, right? And I'm going to show up here, and it's just going to be me and Dana and Dax, 
and everyone's gone. Everyone goes to other churches because they're like, we've had it. We've had enough of him. He's a joker. He, we don't need him anymore. Let's move on to another church. And so there I am. I'm up here just preaching. Dana's down here, and she's on her phone, and I'm thinking she's reading her her uh, scriptures off of you version. I discover she's not reading you version. She dialed up that jerk Craig Groeschel and she's watching him preach because he's more funny than me and better looking to look at. And I figure that out and I'm just like, Dana, even you, you know, and, and, and that, there you go. That when I start having that fear, I'm like, I'm bowing to the idol of success and popularity, aren't I? But the reason I can share that today and not really be afraid of you guys judging me and walking out of here is because the reality is if you sit back and you say, well, Tony, I don't have an idol, I say, no, you are lying to me right now. Every one of us has some kind of idol that, that, that will we think gives us power and security and significance. I mean, for some of us, maybe it's money or, or it's romance, that if I just have that perfect romance, if I just get that in place, then everything's going to be right with me and everything's going to be right in this world. If I can look to my mate, if I can look to that other person, for some of us who are single, we're sitting there going, okay, if I could just find the one, the one out there. Friend, I'm going to tell you something. I hate to say this, and I'm breaking every, you know, romance, every rom-com out there and every, you know, every uh, $5 romance novel. There is no the one, friend, okay? There's not the one out there that, uh, that is going to fit you perfectly. No matter who you find, there will be conflict. There will be things that you have to work out. Why? Because every one of us are sinners. Every one of us are selfish, and we have things to deal with. But when we allow romance to become all our, our idol, then we tell ourselves that and we think all my problems would be away if, if I can just find the one. And here's the problem. You know, the problem with believing that is if you believe that, then when you do marry, then you've discovered that that person's not the one because they're flawed just like you. And so what do you start doing? You start either really dialing into your, fi into your fantasy life and start having little daydreams about the one out there. Or actually, uh, you might put feet to your thoughts and you divorce this person telling yourself, well, not, not the one. I'm going to continue my search for the one, right? See, romance can be that for us. Work could be that. The perfect home. And, I, and it could be the perfect home figuratively, figuratively, or it could be the perfect home, meaning I'm just trying to find that. If I could find that $400,000 McMansion out there or find that perfect space that's going to create just, just this uh, this you know, beautiful place is going to, it's my life will be complete then. Or for some of us, maybe it's retirement to be able to say that our retirement is fully funded. And I know that whenever I hang up my shingle, that then I can just have peace and ease. For some of us, maybe it's our kids. And, and we were like, you know what, man, my life didn't turn out the way it is. So I'm going to make sure my life, my kid does everything. Everything turns out for my kid so that I can live through them. See, the reality is, again, what am I saying? All these things I've said are good things. There's nothing wrong with them. They're good things that turn into God things for us because they engage us in our deepest emotions. But a second thing I learned about idols is that idols need to be protected, just like Demetrius was doing. He's seeing that, that Artemis was going down, and so he had to stand up for her. The irony that these idols are supposed to protect you, but the reality is you have to defend them, and also you have to defend the love that you have for them, right? That's why I tend to make you mad when I'm preaching, because if I'm not making you mad, then either you're not listening, 
or, or I'm not speaking correctly because what am I doing? Every time I get up here, it's my intent to poke at somebody's idol. And it's to sit there and help all of us remember that these idols are not going to work for us, right? You know, the funny thing about this, when, when I'm dealing with this, what subject do you think when I preach on is the one that tends to get the most feedback and most people want to push back on me? What do you think? Any ideas? My, yeah, there you go. No one got it wrong in the first hour either. You know, yeah, I get it. I, hey, I understand when I come up here and I'm talking about money, I'm talking about finances, I understand and I see the look on your face. I know that your rear is beginning to pucker a bit. And yes, for the, for the record, for those of you, it's actually what I just said was a, a cleaner version than what I wrote down here. So I was feeling a little more salty on Thursday. Uh, but I, 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 I get that you're like, oh, here we go. Here we go again. And why, does it, why doesn't Tony just mind his own business? And why do you feel that way? Because the reality is for so many of us, for most of us, money represents a God. It represents something that it's going to get me somewhere. It's going to give me power. It's going to give me significance. It's going to take care of me and my family when I'm old and gray and I can't take care of myself. And you're asking me to give some of that up, you know? Matter of fact, I kid you not, I could not have planned this in perfect timing. On Thursday, uh, Pam tells me that there was someone that actually wrote her hate mail, wrote her a letter. Uh, it was aimed at me, but for whatever reason, they wrote it to Pam. They gave it to Pam. And this letter was saying that if you remember, those of you who, who, who contribute to Northbridge, you know, we make it a practice that on a quarterly basis, you get a statement to show where you're at and what, how much you've given. And, and along with that statement, I wrote you a letter. And in this letter, I just said, thank you. Thank you. We don't take this lightly. And here's some of the things that we've accomplished this year. We could not have done that if you were not faithful in your tithes and offerings. Thank you for doing that. If you, if most of you are like, oh, I didn't even think about, I didn't even, I just, skimmed through the letter real quick and got rid of it. Yeah, that's, it was just an innocuous letter saying thank you. There wasn't even any kind of little point, you know, like, hey, thank you for giving. Could you give some more? I didn't even do anything like that. I just said, thank you. Thank you for your help. And, and this person uh, wrote to Pam and said, I was never so offended to get a letter from Tony tell about, about giving. That made me so angry. And, and they, we're never coming back to this church again. You know, and of course, I don't know if they were yelling. I'm just imagining that as, I'm, as Pam sharing this with me. And, and then they said, well, we might come back again, but we better never get another letter from this church. We'd never, never communicate to us again. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we'll never write you a letter again. I'm like, what's their names? I'm writing them a letter right now, Pam. <laughs> I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But, but you know, isn't it funny? It was so ridiculous because I, and I, when Pam was telling me this, I go, that letter wasn't bad. She goes, I know. I, ju- I pulled it to look for it and reference to see if there was something in there that you said that was offensive. Because let's face it, Tony, you can't offend. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know I can't. But there was nothing in it. Why? Because for this person, Just even the subject of money is so precious to them that even, I I suspect, I suspect that that they saw their giving statement and they were convicted and they knew that they were holding back what God was calling them to give. And by me saying, thank you for giving what God's called you to give, that they heard me saying, you didn't do what God told you to do. And they got ticked about it. Ticked. Ridiculous, right? Well, that's what happens when idols are in your life because we feel like we have to defend them. And for the record, you don't have, you don't have to defend God. 
Understand that God does not need to, the living God does not need to be defended by you. And so when you have that atheist that's in your cubicle with you and they're saying some of the most ridiculous statements or misstatements and you just get mad and you get ticked off, don't justify you being mad going, well, I'm defending God because God doesn't need to be defended, okay? God does not need to be defended when an atheist makes some asinine comment that shows their ignorance, all you can do, what you should be doing is praying for that person, and you should be saying, you know, I hear what you're saying, and, and gosh, my understanding is different than your understanding, and if you ever want to talk about it in a rational, adult manner, hey, I'm your guy. If you're just going to take, you know, take hand grenades out there, then you know, I'm not going to be a part of that. I don't need to be a part of that. There's, that's not healthy for you or for me, right? God doesn't need to be defended because he's not an idol. A third thing I see about God is that, or about idols, idols demand sacrifice, Idols say, if you want more of me, you got to give up more of you. You see, that's why most of us, when we read about a businessman who cheated the government or defrauded his customers and he, he or she landed in jail, most of us go, that's stupid jerk. And we just immediately picture a person that was evil from the, the time they came out of their mother's womb and they're terrible people. But here's the reality is most of those people aren't evil, Right? Most of those people aren't bad people as you and I would define bad people. What most of those people do is they see that their idol is over here. Maybe it's the closed deal or it's the money or whatever. They see their idol over here and they're like, I'm afraid if I play by the rules, I'm not going to get as much of my idol as I really want. So what shortcut do I need to take to get to my idol? Because once I get my idol, surely it will defend me. It'll take care of me. You know, when I when I break the law, right? So, so a lot of these people, when we read about laws being, you know, the infractions happening, it's because these people, their idol is success. Their idol is winning a business. Their idol is, is you know, making more money. And when they're feeling like, well, I might not get it. I need to maybe change some things. about. I might, might have to sacrifice some things about me, right? Some things like integrity or honesty, or treating your neighbor as yourself, you know? I might have to sacrifice those things so that I can get my idol. That's what idols do. That's the reason why, can I, I already talked about the money thing, but, but you know, one of the other things I see in our culture is when I'm having conversations with single people and I see a, a young man or a young woman, you know, beginning to date a person that they know is not a Christian. You know, a lot of times I just let it go because I'm just like, I know getting into this is going to be you're going to be ugly. But there's the occasional time that I just, I have the perfect opportunity, right? It's the perfect storm. And I'm right there eyeball to eyeball with that person. I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm going in. Let's see what happens here. And I'll look at that young lady and I'll be like, so you're dating so-and-so. Are they, do they go to church? Well, I don't know. And the reality is you do too know. You just don't want to tell me. And they're like, well, no, they're not, they're not, they don't go to church. I'm like, okay, let's play that one out. So you guys get married. He doesn't become a Christian because he's satisfied in his world, and you know you're not going to change him. What are you going to do then? They're like, I'm like, let's play it now. Okay, Lord allows you to have two or three kids, and now you're wanting to raise your kids in the church, but your husband's saying, no, I'm not going to church, and if my kids don't want to go to church, I'm not going to make them go. How's that one going to work for you? And they're like, yeah, you're right, you're right. And I'm like, okay, so why are you still dating them? Uh, just because, because, because I like them, because, because, and it's like, no, it's not because you like them. It's because your idol is that person because they'll bring you comfort. They'll bring you security and you'll take a shortcut and you will willingly 
hook up and connect with someone who is very different than you, very different, that's going to cause pain in the future if the two of you don't come together. You're willing to, to, get, to throw that away so that you can have your idol of significance or have your idol of comfort, have your idol of romance. Why? Because idols demand sacrifice for them. And the final thing I'd say that I've learned about idols is this. Idols, so far I've been talking about idols like an emotion, they're an emotional issue. And they are emotional issues, but idols are not just emotional issues. They are powered by demonic forces. Now, I know we just got out of Halloween, and you, some of you are like, oh boy, here we go. Tony's going to be preaching, you know, telling some kind of horror story about a possession or something. No, no, no. This, this is what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to communicate this. The lies that we say about our idols, friends, are the same lies that Satan told Eve in the garden. They are the same lies that Satan gave to Jesus when he was in the desert. And what I'm trying to say is this, that we think Satan shows his power when we see, you know, these TV shows that are just dominating the airwaves now. You know, there's a new one I just saw called Evil that's on like CBS. And it was basically, you know, uh, the, the thing, uh, the X-Files for modern day version is what that is. And, 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 and they're, they're, they're showing like, you know, these people that sleep above their sheets, four feet above their sheets, they're sleeping, and they're spinning their heads around, and they're spitting out puke, and we think, oh, man, that, that's Satan at his best right there. That's Satan showing his power, this, these crazy demonic possessions that are in the urban legends, right? And honestly, that's not Satan's best. That's not how he shows his power. Satan's best is when he's deceiving us, and he's whispering in our ears, and we have no clue that he's around, and instead we think, well, we're, yeah, this is our idea. This is us right here. But the reality is we're getting this temptation. We're getting this idea just like Eve did in the garden. They're not just emotional issues. They are empowered. These idols are powered by demonic forces. So the question I ask you is how does Jesus confront these idols? He does it simply. Now, some of you are like, you're watching your clock, and you're like, oh, no, another four points. No, good, good news, one point. One point. There's one simple thing that Jesus says that confronts every idol, and that is this. God is better. And you need to know when you're dealing with your idol, like me, when I deal with my idol of success, when I deal with my idol of popularity, the thing that I use to combat that is the reminder that God is better. The true God will give life. He doesn't just promise life. The true God is faithful and will be there when everyone else leaves you. The true God is more secure than your idols. The true God will protect you. The true God, instead of expecting you to make sacrifices for it, he came to this earth and made a sacrifice for you in which he died on a cross because your sin pushed you so far from God's presence. There was no action you could take. There was no mountain you could climb. There there was, no, there was no activity you could do. There was no mantra you could pray. There was no incantation you could utter. There was no statement of belief that you could live to or subscribe to. There was no morality you could attain to to make yourself right in the presence of God. So he came himself and he offered a sacrifice so that it would allow you to return to him. And so the question today as we conclude is, have you returned to God? Now, I've not asked you the question, well, did you pray a prayer when you were 13 years old that you cling to today? Or, or for some of us, did you get 
baptized as a baby or were you baptized as an adult? Well, if that's the case, then okay, then we check that box and we're good today. I'm asking you, have you returned to God? I'm not asking you, well, was there a statement of 13 beliefs that you go, mm, I could sign off on that. I'm going to sign off on those doctrinal propositions and okay, bam, I'm a Christian now. I'm not asking you that. I'm not asking you to take a class at 18 or 13 years old that you were confirmed in the church. I'm not asking you if you did any of those things to get your mind in line with doctrine. What I'm asking you is, have you returned to God because the reality is whatever your idol is that gives you hope in this life, God is better. And friend, I also will tell you this. If you say, yep, Tony, I've returned to God, I can tell you this also. That does not mean you're still not struggling with idols because just like those first century Jews that the book of Hebrews was written to, every day there is a pull to the old gods, right? Every day there's a decision you have to make of will I choose that God is better in my life and do life according to him or am I going to do life according to what my idol says I need to do in order to have maintain my security and my comfort and my sense of peace or my sense of importance? Do I need to sacrifice to those idols and continue to live that out in my life because that's where I get my comfort or will I choose to continue to put faith in the living God because quite simply the living God is better. And that's what we live by. And that's what we espouse at this church. And that's what I'm telling you. You can experience peace and comfort and joy. You can experience wholeness in your life. You can experience a change in living when you come to the conclusion that God is better. For many of us that we believe God is better, but you still in the back, you, you hear that idol that you put in the closet and you put it away and you're just, you hear its call to you and you just every once in a while like, ah, I need to lean back to that. I need to go back to that idol. Friend, repent of that and live your life in such a way in which it screams to the world that's watching you, God is better. Let us pray. Father, we come before you right now and may that prayer be our prayer today. May you hear people in this very moment, Lord, just whispering today to you, God, you are better. You are better. You're better than the romance I crave or you're better than the security my family gives me. God, you're better than the money I could possibly make. You're better than my job. You're better, God, than my kids. Oh, can we pray that today, church? God, we trust in you this very moment because you're better. Help us every day when we have to confront the idols in front of us. And may we as a congregation not be people who cling to our own little deities, but we embrace you because you are better. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Northridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.